Hey guys, my name is Audrey Chapman. I'm a recovered alcoholic. Hello, welcome. Where are the family members? They're like, Welcome. We are so glad to have you here. Um, let me let me just say that uh, we wouldn't be here without the family members. We just wouldn't. There's a lot of us that would be uh, gone today. So thank you so much for what you all have done and for showing up and being a part of um, the residence recovery. That's such a cool, cool deal. I mean, I've sat in that chair too. So. I'll I'll tell y'all about that too. If Alanon had a draft, they'd be after me. Just, I mean, there's so many of them. But anyway, um, like I said, I'm a recovered alcoholic. Um, I am honored to be here tonight and to tell my story. I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, what I was like, what happened, and what I'm like now in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous and Cocaine Anonymous and Drug Addicts Anonymous that I just absolutely adore. Um, and I wouldn't have told you that eight years ago. I didn't come through these doors. Please be here. You know, um, Marcia and I are very, very different people, and it's an interesting dynamic that we've created. Marcia came through the door and, like, busted it in, right? <laughs> Turning car wheels, being real crazy and loud, and, um, and you knew she was here. Uh, that's not how I came on the scene. I'm, I'm very shy, very quiet, um, and very deceitful, and I will slide in the back door, stand in the corner, assess the situation, and then play my cards. Um, and so you don't usually see me coming. And so it, it was an interesting way that I got to Alcoholics Anonymous. I, um, I, I came, like I said, from a family full of drunks. The only one that was noticeable when I was young was my father, uh, just a real, real bad alcoholic. And um, I adore my parents. They um, are phenomenal people. They just are. Um, and I, I certainly am not an alcoholic because my parents were divorced or I came from a hard childhood or um, had some, some issues growing up. Those things were certainly true. But that's not the reason that, that I drank. Um, I drink because I'm bodily, mentally different than my fellow man. I just am. Um, I'm also driven by an internal condition that untreated, I will pick up a drink over and over and over. And you residents know exactly what I'm talking about because you hear it all the time. It's taught in Big Book. If you're a family member and you don't have a Big Book, let me encourage you to buy one. Read it. See what this thing is about. It, it's vital information on why we do what we do. We are a different breed of people. Are we not? So many family members are sitting back scratching your head and going, seriously? <laughs> I get that. I get that. Um, and, and I did that for a long time until my alcoholism took me to a place where I was the one doing those things and, and living that way. So I grew up in a, a small town out in East Texas. Um, do you guys know where Sulphur Springs, Texas is? You may want to admit it. This one over here. <laughs> Little bitty town. They got the Walmart. It was like big doing. Um, grew up on a dairy. I mean, it just it was a hot mess. Um, but, but it was a lot of fun. I grew up in a house full of love, um, but alcoholism was ever present. Um, and when I was six years old, uh, my mother made the decision to leave my father. And, and what's so sad about that is that she will tell you till this, to this day that he's her soulmate. You know, that she absolutely loved and adored him, still, you know, would consider him a best friend. But that's what alcoholism does. It, it, it devastates everything around us. It just does. Um, and so we left as a result of his drinking. And my mother's thought process was, is if I can get my child out of the situation, um, hopefully she won't be one of them. You know, and so she, she attempted to coddle me and mold me and... and Grew me into being this this person and, and to keep me from the alcoholism, um, and, and you know how that goes. <laughs> and um, 
lo and behold, it just happened anyway. Uh, and, and so she remarried. My father remarried. I grew up with uh, step-siblings, half-siblings, and I grew up with a lot of family members. And I was kind of back and forth between mom and dad. And, and the fact was I have a, a family that loves and adores me and, and fought over who got to spend more time with me. The feeling was I was the child from the first marriage who got lost in the shuffle. And that's how my alcoholism diluted me from day one. Anybody else in here a victim? Martyr? <laughs> right? Woo! I was a book on that. I mean, to tell you, it was like, well, you understand, my parents are divorced, and I gave them a hard life, and it's just like, really? I remember my mom telling me one time, Audrey, you're not the one who got divorced. You're not the one who lost your soulmate. And I'm like, right, right, that's, that's true. <laughs> it just felt devastating, you know, but it's like, I can't see what's in front of me because I'm so delusional and self-centered. I make everything about me. Anybody else? Right? It, it just if, Even if it's just close to me, I'm going to make it about me. Um, and, and so I grew up that way that I was depressed, I had severe anxiety disorder, I had issues around food. I mean, I just, like, all turned in on myself all the time um, in, in a huge way. Um, I've always felt uh, a little bit separate then. You guys know what I mean by that? Like you walk in the room and everybody shouts your name. I mean, they all know you. It's like cheers, right? Norm. I mean, they all know you. They're trying to connect with you and trying to interact, and I'm still alone. What is that about? It's about an internal condition that separates me from everyone else. Um, and I was always like that, always, always. I remember being the kid at the, the slumber parties that would go and hide in the closet and it'd be pissed when nobody came to find me. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody's even noticed. <laughs> you know, it's just like, they're playing games. Get out the closet. Drama. <laughs> you know, and, and that's just how I live my life. And so it wasn't until I discovered... Um, alcohol and drugs when I was about 15 years old and I'm in a back alley. We had moved to Denton, which is about a two-hour-ish drive from Sulphur Springs. So my dad stays in, in Sulphur Springs with his wife and his other daughter and stepbrother and family and my mom and stepdad and I and other, you know, we all go over to Denton and I'm doing this back and forth game and, and I'm trying to fit in in the schools and I can't seem to make that work. Um, my mom sent me to a private Christian school because I um, was having issues with the girls at school, um, running that mouth, and, uh, and so she sends me to a private Christian school, and she's all the time trying to mold me and set me up for success and put me on the right path and, and give me opportunities, and I bust through every one of them. I'm damned if you tell me who I'm going to be. You know, it's just, mm, I can't seem to accept the, what's been given to me. Um, and just that arrogant, that arrogant. Anybody else that's looking at me is going, baby, you've got it laid out. But I'm so arrogant, I won't touch it. So I'm in this school district. I'm not happy because you're not going well. Um, and it's not that I'm not capable. I excel in sports. I excel in school. People want to be my friend. Um, but I'm constantly giving them everybody the pushback. I'm in a back alley um, with a little boy from down the street. And the first time alcohol hit the back of my throat, and I could breathe. I could breathe. And I'm with my stepsister. Uh, like I said, I think we're 14, 15, something like that. I held off for a very long time compared to some of you people. Y'all had your first drink at two. I'm like, whew. Um, <laughs> no, my mama was clocking me. Don't want you to end up like your daddy. Um, and so we're out there, and, and all of a sudden I'm able to connect to this guy, and I'm able to connect with my stepsister in a manner which I had never experienced. 
Never. And I remember stumbling back over to the house and um, with my stepsister and saying, is this what being loaded feels like? And she's like, yeah, this is it. I'm going to tell you something. I, my intention was not to go way past the mark. It wasn't, it, it wasn't, I was trying to escape stuff. It was, I was trying to get right. Do you guys know what I mean by that? I'm trying to settle in my own skin. Um, and a couple of drinks will do that for me. But I continue to, to drink more and more. I'm not really sure what that's about at that point in time, but, but it's what happens. Um, and so I continue to get loaded as often as I can without anyone finding out, which is how I like to roll. I don't know about y'all, but I like to drink without consequence. Anybody else? <laughs> Didn't pan out that way. But um, that's, that's, what my, that's what I'm attempting to do. And so I do this off and on through high school. And mind you, I'm showing up for Bible study. I'm showing up for chapel. I can quote the scripture. Um, I put on the game face, and I can be pleasant and do what I need to do. And I'm dying inside, absolutely dying inside. <laughs> At this point, time bless you, uh, My father had gotten sober. Very <laughs> easily distracted. Um, my father had gotten sober uh, when I was, I guess, like, middle school, something like that, fifth, sixth grade. Um, and by sober, I mean he went to Charter Hospital. Remember when those were on the scene? Right? So he went to Charter Hospital. He dried out, took some vitamins. We went over family day, did football rounds, good times. So he gets over. Right? And he goes to AA, goes to a bunch of meetings, doesn't get a sponsor, doesn't work any steps. And so he's like stark raving sober. Right? <laughs> he's like, Whoo! okay, Mr. Chapman needs a drink. But uh, anyway, so he's doing that whole game. And, um, and then at some point he relapses. I don't realize it's a relapse because in my mind, as a, as a young person, if somebody had a problem with alcohol, Home, they're no longer drinking, they're no longer an alcoholic. I didn't understand the concept that once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic, the disease will continue to progress whether or not I pick up a drink. It was a new concept for somebody like me. I used to say my father used to be an alcoholic. Um, he picked up a drink and he hooked a hard left after seven years without a drink. Um, so we began to drink together, um, which caused big problems um, in that side of the family. And, um, and so what happens is, is that he, uh, he gets really bad really quick. I'm in my late teens, early twenties, and, um, things have started to get weird for me. I graduated from high school and decided that I needed to go away. You know, that whole game. Like, it's, I just need to get away from you people. Y'all are just stressing me. And I just need a new environment and a fresh start and a change of pace and that's gonna do it. And, the problem with that is, is wherever I show up, I show up full force on the scene with an internal condition. <laughs> and I can change all my people, places, and things, but I'm still me. And I'm still irritable. Everybody and everything irritates me to death. The, the way you breathe is obnoxious to me. Do <laughs> you need to chew so loudly? It's like, <laughs> right? It's like I'm constantly like on the verge of that one real quick, sharp, you know, thing that you shouldn't say. Um, I'm always fighting that kind of deal. I'm restless. I can't sleep. And when I do sleep, it's not good sleep. I can't ever shut the mind down. And the only thing that seems to kill that is alcohol. Um, and I'm discontent. I'm consistently saying things like, I'll be happy when, dot, dot, dot. I'll be okay if X, Y, and Z could just all fall into place and stay. Um, and what's weird about that is that even when all of that lines up and the stars are just right and my ducks are in a row and it's all magical, I'm unhappy. And I get loaded. And it just consistently seems to be a problem for me. And so I go off to school thinking this is the fresh start. We go to a Baptist university. 
Um, no, we can't use that stuff. No, you can't have any of this. And then people, oh, let's share. Let's share a bottle. I'm like, no, no, baby. I'll buy you one, but we're not sharing. <laughs> I like to drink with girls. They would like, share everything. We go to the bathroom together at the same time. I'm like, no, when you go to the bathroom, I'm going to get another shot. So anyway, um, so I'm living in this house, and, and I eventually stopped going to school um, because it just becomes difficult. You know, I just can't, I can't show up for things on time. And when I do, I am a wreck. Um, I'm having to tell a professor that I have mono, you know, because I shuffle in and I look rough. Some of y'all do the alcohol and dope thing and you don't look that bad. Now, I do. It's very obvious when I go off the chain. And I used to show up at my parents' house and, like, let their garage door up in the middle of the night and steal alcohol from them and then leave. And then I go over during the middle of the day and take food from them. And my mom is very... Um, she has always been very social. She was in a sorority. She's still in a sorority. She's like in her late 50s. Um, they still meet. It's like legit. Um, <laughs> sorry. I don't know anything about that. Um, so I would show up and she'd be having like tea parties and I mean, oh my god. I would shuffle in like <laughs> freaking. <laughs> my hair looks crazy. I haven't worn makeup in forever. And, and just shuffle in and kind of look at them and go to the kitchen and take food. And it's like you can see the embarrassment. Or she's like, this is my oldest daughter. <laughs> she's a disaster. <laughs> you know, she didn't say that, but she wanted to. Um, it's just very embarrassing. And I began to compromise who I was as a human being. I began to do things that are unacceptable to me. And um, and it's weird how you can have like that. those, like, the big book calls them moral and philosophical convictions galore. And it's like a standard, a set of right and wrong, what's okay and what's not okay. And I began to compromise those in full force. Um, I stopped paying bills. I stopped turning on lights. I start taking things that don't belong to me, um, including, you know, your man. You know, it's like I suddenly have no values whatsoever. And let me, let me tell you, that's not who I am. It's really not, um, and it's not how I was raised, and it's not who I wanted to be, and it was the kind of person that I judged and that I talked about, and all of a sudden I'm looking in the mirror, and that's who I've become. Um, I'm fully supported by finances that don't belong to me, um, and I've been very, very incredibly selfish and dishonest about that. Um, and so I, I eventually, like I said, I lived with these guys. I don't know why I thought that was going to be a good idea, but um, a couple of guys that I'd gone to high school with, I thought it would be fun to live in a house with them um, instead of living with girls. And what started off being cute about how much I could drink started getting embarrassing. And towards the end of it, they had just had enough. Um, and I lived on a urine-stained mattress constantly. I mean, it just got very sick and very weird. Um, it always gets really quiet. <laughs> All the normal people in the room are like, oh, my God. Sleeps in urine. Yeah, had become, and it, I don't just mean an alcoholic, but when people would talk about him, they go, oh, yeah, Mr. Chapman, I mean, he lost his career, and he lost his wife, and he lost his child. It's very sad. And they pitied him. And I was like, I will never be that person. And then all of a sudden, I overhear it. <laughs> people talking about me and the way that I live my life and going, I know, sad. And I'm just like, oh, God, I had become that person. But there's absolutely nothing that I could do about it. I began to try to rein it in. Y'all know what I mean by that? I'm not trying to quit. 
So just try to reel it in a little bit. Um, and it's impossible to do that. And when I do pull it off, it's like nails on a chalkboard. I am unhappy without alcohol or drugs in my life. I just am. Um, and so it's at this point in time that I begin to get in trouble because I don't know what it is about me when I get loaded. I get somewhere to be. <laughs> I need to be in the car. Um, and I, it was just pitiful. I had nowhere to be and nobody wanted to see me. And people had stopped answering my phone calls long ago. Um, they'd done an intervention on me. Anybody else in here had an intervention done on you? That's good times. <laughs> yeah. They um, thankfully picked a spokesperson who lived in Chicago. And so they did it via <laughs> telephone. It's just stupid. Um, so they called me, and I'm like in the back of a pickup truck with a couple of guys, and we're um, drunk and high, and um, they're saying, okay, well, here's the situation. We're doing an intervention. I'm like, nothing will show you up like the word intervention. Um, and I'm like, listen, let me stop you before you even get there. I have had a problem, and I want to go ahead and admit that, but I've reined it in, and I understand, and I'm just like out of my mind, right? And I convince them everything's going to be okay. I mean, just the level of dishonesty, and I'm like kind of listening to the conversation and watching these two guys like interact with each other in this real bizarre manner. Um, like we do, we're in a graveyard. Like that's my life. We're <laughs> like, oh my god, I'm getting an intervention via telephone at the graveyard. <laughs> These guys have gone away. These people in general have gone away. Um, and and I live to get loaded. I don't come out during daylight hours. I keep very dark, weird hours. Um, I wake up at 5 p.m. I go to bed at 5 a.m. Um, don't ask me to do anything like go to the grocery store and get my oil changed. I don't know how to be around people. Um, I stopped going to the grocery store because I just couldn't handle it. And my mom would go and get food, and she would drop it off at my house. And it just got very pitiful. Um, and that's how I live my life. And I sat in the garage and I chain smoked and I drank and I hated you. And that's what that looked like. I wasn't sure who I hated more, you or me. I, I couldn't decide, but that's what I spent my time pondering. <clears throat> and um, when nightfall, <laughs> I would drive the backcountry roads and listen to music and in a dark depression um, and throw beer bottles out the window and, and get high and I did what I did. And that happened for a very, very long time um, until, gosh, 2003, 2004. And um, people reached out to me and tried to help me. Um, I had lied. I stopped going around people, so it was very, it was very easy to lie over the phone and tell them I'm still in school, I'm still working, I'm still doing stuff. And they kept me in a very good moment, like in a small window. I could convince them. So when my dad's health began to fail due to his alcoholism, my stepmom um, called me and said, "We're going to have to do an intervention on your dad." And I'm like, "I'm on it," you know. <laughs> And you were free, and you were lighthearted, 
and you laugh things off, and it was just the weirdest thing I'd ever seen, but I knew that that would never be the case for me. So I go home to do this intervention on my father, meet with the pastor, um, and the pastor <laughs> wants to blame my father for my drinking, and I'm like, I'm on board with that. You know? <laughs> if we can pin anything on anybody else, I will sign up for that. And mind you, my father is my closest friend. Love and adore that man. Absolutely do. Um, but if you come close to my drinking, I'll roll over on you like that. I mean, in, in any other circumstance in life, I'll take the blame. I mean, like I said, I'm a martyr. I'm like, oh, that was me. Let's just find a solution and move on. I will absolutely take the blame. You look at my drinking and want to come at me, I'll roll over on you. And so we go home to do this intervention, and um, I'm watching him. He's standing in the, he's loaded, but he's not drunk, and we can't figure out what he's on or what he's doing, and he's too messed up to do the intervention. And he's standing in the back bedroom. The master bedroom is on the end of the house, and I walk back there and kind of sneak up on him, and I'm watching him, and it's like the weirdest thing I've ever seen. And he's standing in the mirror, and he's talking to himself, and he's doing that thing where he sways, and he talks to himself, and he's trying to psych himself you know what I'm saying? Like, make yourself feel better. And I'm thinking, I'm, he's 50 at the time, 49, 50, um, and I'm 22. And I'm thinking, hmm, I could make it. Like, not uh, the drinking's going to kill me. It's about to. I'm physically almost as bad as him. But I'm thinking, what if I made it to 50? Continuing to live the way that I live. I'd rather die. I'd rather die. And that was the fear that kind of sank in, like, oh, my God, this could never end. Ever. It could go on forever. And I'd already reconciled with the fact that my life was going to be like this sickness that I'd already lived in. But I didn't expect to live forever. I'd already picked out funeral songs. <laughs> right? I mean, I was expecting to die at some point in the very near future, in my early 20s, and it frightened me to think that, oh, my God, I could live to be 50 this way. Um, and I remember I left his house, and I got out on the backcountry roads, and, um, and I called my mother, who I feared. I feared. She's got a master's degree. She was in the Miss Texas pageant. She can do anything she sets her mind to. Bright, beautiful, determined woman. I could never measure up to her, ever. And I remember I called her, and it just, she said, how did the intervention go? How's your dad? Is everything okay? And I said, Mom, I'm an alcoholic, and I need some help. And as soon as those words flew out, I went, oh, dear God. <laughs> you know, because I had gone to her for help before. Mom, I'm drinking. Things are out of control. There's bad situations going on. I don't know what to do. And her, her answer for that was, Audrey, you need to knock it off. Which sounds like a viable solution, doesn't it? We can grow up. Make better decisions. Get responsible. Make a better choice. And so I'm armed with that decision, and I can't pull it off, and I fail over and over and over, wondering, why? So I say these words to her, and she said, we're going to have, we need to do something. And I'm like, absolutely. I've got to go somewhere. Like, I need some help. I'm not attending school. I'm not working. I don't know about y'all, but when I can't work, what I do is I go work for my family. Because <laughs> you don't have to show up, but you can still draw a paycheck. It's a beautiful thing. Right? So I, I stopped showing up at their agency a long time ago, but I was continuing to draw income very dishonestly from them. Um, 
always promising, oh, I've got a stomach ache, oh, I've got this, oh, I've got that. I can't even tell you, like the round of <laughs> doctor's visits where they do the endoscope and go down and we're trying to figure out what's wrong with their stomach as I'm vomiting vodka on them, you know? Oh! <laughs> oh so she's like, Audrey, I need you to stay sober and come home, and we're going to figure this out. And I'm like, we're going to have to do something. I don't know what that looks like, but we'll have to do something. So... Um, I go home immediately, get loaded. The very thought of never taking a drink again is horrifying to me. It horrifies me almost as much as the thought of continuing to drink the way that I drink. Um, and so I go back and, um, and get loaded the way I get loaded, and, and we decide that I need to go somewhere and be confined for a period of time because I am not somebody, and this happens. I sponsor women like this. I have friends like this that can come in off the street inside the rooms and get sober and stay sober, and that's a beautiful thing. I'm not knocking that. I am a woman who can't stay away from it for a day. I mean a day, and so I'm, like, willing to go away somewhere. I'm like, please take me somewhere. I can't do this. Um, and so my mom's flipping through the back of a phone book, in, a Denton phone book, and we find this facility down in South Texas. And um, so we, I think it's like on a Monday, we decide to do this. And on Thursday is the day of check-in. We've got that small little window of about to go to treatment time. Um, and I didn't know you could show up at treatment loaded. I was so angry when I got there. Thank <laughs> you. 
another night it was like a topic meeting and it was very bizarre and there was no, I don't know, there was a solution in the room. I didn't hear it, but again, I wasn't searching for it um, at that time. So when I got there, I wasn't there for AA. I wasn't there for 12 steps. I was there to get some separation from my problem, get on a treadmill, right? start taking some vitamins, get some sleep, you know, do these kinds of things. And they started talking about the big book and the solution, and I'm like, hold up. What? Are you saying that I'm not a bad person? Are you... Are you saying that I don't do this because I don't care about myself or the people around me? And they started talking about um, the allergy in my body. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, I'm not allergic to alcohol. I can put it away, right? This is not a problem for me. But then they go on to explain this phenomenon of craving, and I'm like, that's why I do what I do. That's why when you guys leave, I continue to drink. That's why when I'm on the floor and I can't walk or speak, I'm searching for another drink. I remember being arrested one time, and they said, you shouldn't be able to stand your blood alcohol level, yet much less drive. And I'm like, buddy, i got a case waiting for me at the house. I'm not even done. <laughs> because my body demands that I have more and more, and then suddenly things begin to click into, into place. And this inability to make a decision and stick with it around staying away from alcohol for good for all. And I'm like, oh, my God. And that's why Dad does what he does. And it just clicks. I'm sick, you know, and um, and it was probably some of the best information I had ever gotten, ever gotten, because it meant that if there was a problem and I wasn't just a piece of, you know what, there might be a way out for me. I, I didn't believe that there would be, but I was willing to do some some searching for it. Um, they gave me the number of a woman in Dallas uh, named Julie, and um, she was here last was last month. She was here. She prayed me. And, uh, <laughs> um, they said, who, you need to call this lady when you get back to Dallas and, and let her sponsor you, let her take you through the work. And I got excited about sobriety. I'm listening to speaker tapes. I mean, I'm burning them up. I got a big book I'm highlighting. I mean, it's just like, oh, my God, a whole new world came into view. Um, and I get home because it's like a bubble here. Right? I get home and life looms large. I have created storm and it's waiting on me. Um, and I get home and I'm a broken, fragile child at 22 years old. Body that is just worn out. And, um, and I show up at this group called Primary Purpose in Dallas and there's a hundred people there. I don't do people. <laughs> right? And I'm like, oh god. And when I first got sober, I always wore a baseball hat and I would pull it down over my eyes so I didn't have to look at you. I wouldn't make eye contact. I didn't speak. I was very bizarre. I remember when I went back to the Strickland Center for an annual reunion, they didn't know who I was because I would slide in the back door and sit down and I would never say anything. Julie was voted worst patient ever. No, I'm just kidding. But she was like least likely to succeed or something like that. They were chasing her down on a golf cart, just like you women that run down this hill. We chase some of y'all, too. I remember. <laughs> Tracy's good. Tracy always catches them. You always catch them. death. I was like, I don't know about all this. Um, but as time progressed and I wasn't doing the work, I got worse away from a drink. It was the most bizarre thing I had ever seen. Um, I was still scared of what you thought. I still had no ambition. I was still frightened to speak to people. I didn't want to go anywhere. I didn't want to do anything. 
and, and it just all of a sudden clicks. Like, I'm getting ready to get loaded. I spent six months crazy inside the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous early on. And at six months sober, I can't decide, should I drink and try to stay? Because I put everybody on notice I'm in recovery to stay. I'm always like, I'm in sober. You know, i got to put everybody on notice. So I'm like, I can't decide if I'm going to drink and stay and try to run game on everybody. And I know that's not going to work. Or if I should just drink and go away. Because I'm that uncomfortable without bourbon. In the solution of the 12 steps, I'm at that halfway point um, where I watch a lot of us stay forever. For years, you can stay there. And it's very unfortunate because it, it doesn't have to be that way. Um, so I show up one night at 10 o'clock at Julie's house, and I'm like, I'm, I'm losing it. And she can see it. And she begins to take me through the work that night. It's 4 o'clock in the morning. We're on our knees doing a third-step prayer. I was convinced. That my alcoholism was getting ready to kill me at that point. I was convinced. And I'm going to tell you something. I love willingness. I love to sponsor somebody with willingness, but give me desperation. It just sends chills all down my legs. And I used to listen to a guy in my group, JK, that would say that, give me desperation. You start sponsoring people with some desperation, it is a joy, an absolute joy to watch them light on fire. Right, so we, we burned through these steps, and in a matter of less than a week, probably, um, we've done my fifth step. I've done six and seven. I've, I'm starting to make amends, um, and I, I'm working from a place of, I don't ever want to live like this again, drunk or sober, you know, and I began to chase the solution, and I remember leaving her house one afternoon, and we'd done some, some sort of step work, I'm, I'm sure, and I remember thinking to myself, I could, I could do this forever. I could get excited about this way of life, really. Not just being in the meetings and saying hi and highlighting and playing the game like we do. I could get excited about living these steps and living these principles. Um, and my life began to change, and, and it's never been the same. I got to make so many amends. Um, I love there's a picture of Cliff over there. Um, I get to make amends to my family and watch that stuff come back together. I remember making amends to my grandfather. I mean, my grandfather's an amazing man. Amazing. Came from nothing. Um, and, and just so spiritually grounded, it's not even funny. Um, and he taught me so much, and, and I, I burned him up. You know, and I got sober. He sold that house, which I had turned into, it's like a brand-new neighborhood. Brand-new homes going up. Lots of families, lots of happiness. And then you know there's that one house. <laughs> Nobody ever mows the lawn. There's beer cans. Somebody's quick up his park sideways. And they're like, oh, God, I'm half-naked out there smoking cigarettes. like, jeez. He's like, we're selling that house. You can live with your mother, which is a no-no, or you can come and live with me. And I lived with him. He put me through college. I mean, set me on a path to success, and I seized every opportunity that man has given me. I owe so much to him. It's not even funny. And I remember going to make amends to him, and I sat down. I'm like, Papa, I was wrong in the following ways. You know, part of what I'm doing in sobriety is that I'm setting straight some things that I've made wrong. And I listed that stuff out and told him where I was selfish and dishonest and inconsiderate and asked him that important question, what can I do to make this right with you? And I'm fully expecting the, uh, you keep doing what you're doing, sweet me. <laughs> right? And he's like, <laughs> You can be the woman that God called you to be. I mean, he laid that out 
I get to work with some really phenomenal women. I got to give a birthday night at my group was, I guess, last weekend or week before last. I got to give a woman that I sponsored a two-year chip, and I got up and I said, I want to be like her. And it's true. This is an amazing person who, who lives this program, and I'm like, God, I want to be more like her. You know, but we all have these these character defects and these things that stand in our way. And the program will show you how to live with them in spite of yourself. You know, I didn't get perfect just because I got sober. And I tell you, my dad got sober about a year after I did. You know, and there was a point in time when this older gentleman on this wall back here, this crazy bald man, was trying to sponsor him long distance, and, and his wife was dying at the time. And he said, Audrey, I can't, I've done step one with your dad. I can't work with him on two and three. My wife is dying. I need you to go and work with him and do steps two and three with your dad. And I'm like, is that allowed? Like, <laughs> I got to get get alone with my father and take him through steps two and three. How precious is that? How precious, right? Yeah. It's the coolest thing. My stepsister um, is is newly clean again after having some bumps in the road. One of my other sisters two years clean. My mom picked up her thirty day chip this week. I'm like, everybody sit down. Got <laughs> you all situated. Everybody sit down. But it's a cool thing because I, I came on the scene with a family that was still off the chain. Except for my stepfather, who's like the only normal person. And he's like, what, what are we doing? All these crazy women. I mean, it's like, oh, well, I'm so sorry. I mean, you know, it is what it is. But I'm here to tell you that I love what it what it talks about. I don't want to try to quote it because I'll misquote it. On page 98, some of my favorite, favorite stuff. It's really cool and panic. It says, burn the idea into the consciousness of every man that he can get well regardless of anyone. The only condition is that he trusts in God and clean house. I can't tell you how many of you I listen to who go, but you don't understand. Here's my situation. I'm like, no, boo, you don't understand. <laughs> I come from some craziness. I'm here to tell you that I, I have walked through more in sobriety than I ever thought about loaded. Right? I buried my father four years ago, and he was sober, had an accidental tragic death. I got to get up from the podium with his big book and quote his favorite stuff. That's the power of God. That's cool stuff. I walked away from a man who I wanted to marry because God called me. I'm going to tell you something. If you make a decision to do what's in this text, if you make a decision to really follow the power of God, expect to be questioned by people around you. Expect to be misunderstood. Expect to be talked about. Who cares? You're clean. You're sober. You are in line with God's will. Could there be anything better? I'm here to tell you there's not. Except for sober sex. It's really
the bad times bearable and the good times phenomenal. Here's what's even cooler. The 12 steps make the bad times bearable and the good times phenomenal. They just do. It's an absolute replacement and then some. So much more than you could ever expect. Um, well, getting to take another person through the steps and watching their life change, until you have that experience, you will never know. And I've heard people saying that when I got sober, they're like, there's nothing like working with people. It's the bright spot of my day. So I thought, you're a loser. That's the right <laughs> that grows up about you that you get to be a part of and you think it's going to make you arrogant and it doesn't. That's what's cool is that you get to step back and go, that's not about me. I'm so small in the part of this. Right? And when you do get arrogant, God will smack you down. It'll be like that little game at Chuck E. Cheese when your ego pops up and will just be smacking it left and right. And if you have a good sponsor, they'll assist you. But I'm here to tell you that if you haven't really submitted to this, it won't work. It won't work. Um, you and I are people that live our lives in half measures. We always have. I'll submit just enough to get by and get my little thing stamped and then I'm out. And if you really want to be a part of this program, better go all in. Do it like you did when you were getting loaded. I pushed all my chips in the table. I'd have thrown away everything. I mean, think about it. What, would it, what did it look like for you to get your next whatever? Right? You've thrown away everybody and everything, kicking over old ladies, trying to get get one more. And then all of a sudden we get sober and it's like, well, I don't know if I have time for that. Really? Go all in or go home. You're wasting your parents' time and money. Go all in or go home. If you want to go all in, we'll do anything to help you. It's the coolest ride ever. I appreciate you guys. Thanks so much.